Peter Jack Charlton. Is a thinking game. Sit down and take it easy. Maybe a bit volatile. Welcome everyone to Back to Jack, a new podcast series which is going to take you through the entire Jack Charlton era game by game, touching on the football, the culture and the events of a memorable period in Irish history. If you're joining us on the Irish Football Chronicles feed, you're probably thinking that sounds a lot like Irish Football Chronicles. Well, it does because it is, but this time we'll be focusing exclusively on the Jack Charlton era and I'm going to be joined by two sterling and knowledgeable co-hosts who are taking this trip through time with me. So, fellas, do you want to introduce yourselves? My name is Dave Donnelly. I'm the chief sports writer with uh, Dublin Live. My kind of entire childhood was taken up with, you know, getting off early on a Wednesday afternoon from school and trying to catch the second half and stuff like that. So it was, uh, it'd be nice to actually see the games uh, in a bit more detail. I'm John Breslin and have found myself on the other side of uh, recording podcasts uh, in recent years both football and rugby podcasts and yeah looking forward to, to giving it a go in front of the mic I mean it's the period I, I grew up in so uh, and uh, Jack Charlton is a bit of a legend in, in my hometown of Ballina and Mayo because uh, he used to used to come and fish in the River Moy uh, but yeah I grew up with this team so it's just it's going to be a fun kind of fact-finding mission through a rose-tinted period of my childhood I suppose. For me I think the Charlton era has receded from real living memory a bit and it's been replaced by cliches and well-worn tales so we hope to evoke it as it actually happened for all those who may have forgotten what it was like or may not even have lived through it because there's an alarming amount of you out there as well. This being episode one we're going to have to fill in a little bit of backstory so the Republic had failed to qualify for the 1986 World Cup on their own hand in fact they'd never qualified for any World Cup and Northern Ireland were on their way to their second consecutive appearance um, at the 1986 World Cup. Owen Hand was, of course, the man in charge for the 1986 qualifiers. He was a a former international turn manager. He'd won the League of Ireland with Limerick, but he found the Ireland gig tougher going. I actually recently, over Christmas, read through his his biography, his ghosted autobiography. Um, I had really no opinion of Owen Hand until I did, and now I have not very positive opinion of Owen Hand. He kind of, he reminds me a bit of that character Gil from The Simpsons. He's just kind of congenitally hapless and unlucky and uh, not hugely inclined to point the finger at himself, I would say. Oh, this is bad. This is really bad. You're working, you slave. There's one bit about his playing days when Ireland played Brazil in Brazil. And he talks about how he, how he felt he did such a, a good job marking Rivellino and took him out of the game. And then he's like... Oh, incidentally, Rivellino dummied me and scored the winning goal as well. Just a little postscript uh, so, there on. Uh, so, yeah, I know he's, he's, he's a very popular figure within Irish football, but I don't think he puts his best foot forward there. Um, Ireland did have some decent results on their own hand. They missed out narrowly on the 1982 World Cup, but the 1986 qualifiers were a bit of a disaster. And by the time they lost 4-1 at home to Denmark in November, if you can imagine such a thing in a, in a big World Cup game, Han's time was well and truly up. So as to who would replace him, well, in the early days of 1986, the leading candidates seemed to be uh, Manchester City boss Billy McNeil, former Rovers manager Liam Toohey, who's now in charge of the Irish youth team, as well as other candidates like the extremely successful Shamrock Rovers manager Jim McLaughlin, and um, a bit of a left-field one, the English World Cup winner, former Middlesbrough Wednesday and Newcastle manager Jack Charlton. With the backing of 
FAI executive member and League of Ireland sponsor Pat Grace, former manager John Giles, also comes into contention. I think Giles coming back into the equation was kind of a, a bit of a red flag, but um, I don't know, a, an unusual list of, of candidates. Two, he seemed to be the uh, the kind of overwhelming favourite, or at least in, in the Indo article I read, uh, which was quite flowery, um, he was <laughs> certainly the, the, the nation's pick. It was some kind of rogues gallery of, of names mentioned everyone's hat was in there was the likes of Alan Mullery Tommy Doherty was mentioned uh, I think most of these people were interviewed actually Pat Crerand who fans of, of our kind of age might remember from RTE's TV coverage in the 90s uh, Gordon Lee Terry Neal Paddy Mulligan Theo Foley uh, there was a suggestion that Brian Clough was approached actually as well which would have been extremely interesting um, also Noel Cantwell was in was in the mix who the former Ireland football and cricket international who I only mentioned because it turns out his full name is Noel Eucuria Cornelius Cantwell, which is an, a name I've literally never encountered, Eucuria, yeah. anywhere, and doesn't doesn't return any other uh, other results on Google either. So he had some very imaginative parents. Um, anyway, to cut a very long story very short, when the FEI's 19-man committee met on the 7th of February, it was but then a four-way contest between John Giles, Liam Toohey, Jack Charlton, and... A shock late entrant, Bob Paisley, one of the most successful yeah. British managers of all time, the Liverpool manager. I think he won six leagues and three European Cups. So he had a serious pedigree and he was only sprung at the last minute. So, gentlemen, if you could, like, quantum leap into the body of an FAI delegate in 1986. So you're sitting there in Merrion Square, you're massaging the soup stains into your blazer, um, forgetting everything you know now. And forgetting your own kind of personal prejudices from from that perspective, who are you voting for? I think it has to be Paisley, doesn't it? I, I, acting with absolutely no hindsight whatsoever, it's just mm-hmm. it seems like he was the outstanding candidate. I don't know how actually close he was, or how how much more expensive than the others he would have been. But certainly, uh, just looking at it um, from a purely uh, I don't know record based uh, assessment. Yeah, sure. It's hard to argue with that. Someone with with the credentials that he has, it'd be hard to to look past him, really. I think I probably would have plumped for him as well, even though he was 67 at this point. Um, And no one actually knew this at the time, but like a lot of players of his era, he was beginning to suffer from what would be identified as Alzheimer's. And it came on him very quickly. Um, As early as 1987, he was was kind of starting to have serious difficulties. Now, that wasn't a factor in the decision because no one knew that, but... uh, yeah, he was kind of, he'd been suffering quite severely by the time he died in, in 1996. But in reality, what seems to have happened is that supporters of Giles and Tuhi seem to resent having Paisley sprung on them. So Charlton only got three votes out of 19 in the first ballot. But by the time it came to the last ballot, Tuhi and Giles had both been eliminated and Paisley, who had led the whole way through, was pipped to the post um, in the last round of voting by Jack Charlton and this was a real bombshell and all the more so because the public didn't even find out that Paisley had been on the ballot until possibly the weekend and literally Peter Burns report in the Irish Times makes no mention of Paisley at all so this was some classic FAI skullduggery of of the kind that we've all come to know and love so that was that the Republic of Ireland had their first foreign manager and the stage was set for what you're going to hear over the course of the next 90 odd episodes first say reaction 
was largely one of surprise, um, I think including to Jack, because the FBI couldn't get hold of him for, for I think, a couple of days he was off fishing. Yeah, there was definitely a bit of derision about his um, his uh, penchant for, for fishing and hunting. I remember seeing a kind of a TV, pro, TV spot, I'm sure you've maybe come across it, of Jack kind of presenting a fishing programme as well. Maybe he was pivoting his career. Mm-hmm. Oh, that looks a good fish. Oh, that looks a good fish. Oh, look at the size of that thing. <laughs> it was something that was kind of part of his persona, I guess, for all his time in the job. So you don't know if he was if he was just um, making them wait to try and get into the role on his own terms. Um, George Best was really unimpressed. He launched into this extraordinary tirade against Jack. He tells him he's only in the game for what he can get out of it. He says uh, his Middlesbrough team bored everyone to death. And most damningly of all, he says, if appearing a lot on TV was important, Terry Wogan should have got the job and probably would do it better. Wow. So Jack had his first press conference. As you know, there was uh, some controversy in your appointment. Are you happy no, that no, you have the full backing I of the FAI? I don't want to talk about controversy. The, cha- the, the chairman phoned me. Oh, the president, president, sorry. <laughs> the president phoned me and said, uh, would you like, uh, the, the job is yours if you would like it. And I said, I would like it. End of story. You feel you have the full backing of the FAI oh, now? Oh, listen, uh, I'm in the job. If I haven't got the full backing, they'll soon let me know. Uh, but it won't make any difference. I'll still be in the job. <laughs> Shortly after Jack got the job, um, sort of in the last week of February, Liam Toohey resigned. He had a very good pedigree, in fact, in charge of the Irish youth teams. He'd reached three European championships and the, the 1985 uh, World Youth Cup. Um, but there was a qualifier at Elland Road and two, he said he was he was completely undermined by Jack. Jack came into the dressing room. He objected to the players being given stake. He started meddling in the tactics. There was a massive fuss from, as we've already identified, too. He was a very kind of popular figure in the media. And Jack basically was unrepentant. Two, he resigned. There's a big kerfuffle over that, particularly his his kind of lieutenants, Brian Kerr and Noel O'Reilly, who will come into the story much later on, uh, were, were outraged by it. So I do remember reading uh, to his own account of it in um, a book, I think it's called Gaffers. He does seem to think very much that um, it, it was a case that he was actively undermined. And I think uh, you, you'll mention it later on, but I think there are to his replacement probably uh, gives another indication of that as well. One of the big preoccupations of the media in the days after Jack gets appointed is who's going to be his his number two because the idea is that Jack will bring in a, a League of Ireland manager um, or a League of Ireland personality who knows the league here, who's based here, who can keep an eye on the league here and that he'll be his kind of a, his local liaison. Two, he was the favourite for that role until this happened. Um, he also spoke to Again, Jim McLaughlin. He spoke even to own hand, the likes of Alpi Hale, Ray Tracy. But ultimately, he ends up putting in place the fairly recently deceased Morris Setters, who was his number two at Sheffield Wednesday. Um, and I think Jack was a lot more comfortable being surrounded by people who, who thought like him. And obviously, Setters took over the under-21 team as well. Anyway, we, we, we finally learn, uh, after Jack's been in the job for a few weeks, that his first opponents won't be Brazil but slightly less glamorous Wales. Brazil was the original plan. Um, we also learned that Ireland will be taking on Belgium, Bulgaria, Scotland and Luxembourg in the Euro 88 qualifiers, which is a pretty horrendous group um, to get out of even in those days. So Jack names his first squad for that game. It's the biggest Ireland squad ever. 
There's 26 players in it. Uh, we now know that the squad was probably largely picked by Mick Byrne, um, other than the players Jack was already familiar with. So if I read the squad to you, you might give me give me your reaction. Our, the goalkeepers were Packy Bonner, Jerry Payton, who hadn't played for Ireland since 1982, and Alan O'Neill of Dundalk, which was slightly surprising because Alan's brother Dermot had actually been picked ahead of him for an, an interleague game. Alan would be in the squad as late as 1989, but he never actually got a cap. So those were the goalkeepers. Outfield players were Lawrenson, Beglin, McGrath, Moran, Hewton, Anderson of Newcastle, Dave Langan, Whelan, Brady, Sheedy, Jerry Daly of Shrewsbury, Jerry Murphy of Chelsea, who was a player I didn't know at all. He got three caps. All I know about him really is that Terry Venables called him the Perry Como of football, which I think was meant to reflect on his smoothness or something. Grealish, Houghton, Pat Byrne of Shamrock Rovers, Frank Stapleton, Tony Galvin, Michael Robinson, John Byrne, Kevin O'Callaghan of Portsmouth, Tony Cascarino and John Aldridge. That squad gets decimated down to about down to about 19 players. Okay. Lawrenson pulls out, Moran pulls out, Sheedy pulls out, yeah. Murphy, O'Callaghan, Cascarino, Stapleton. Um, the big kind of talking point was that Mick McCarthy wasn't there. You know, Mick McCarthy had already had, had quite a few caps um, and was playing for Manchester City was kind of very much a, a player that would become completely identified with, with Jack's type of football. So it's a bit of a mystery as to why he wasn't in the original 26. Well, the centre-halves in general jump out, both the both the absent ones and uh, the players in the squad, right? Didn't Jack say at his first presser that, you know, that we've got, he didn't identify them, but we've two of the best uh, centre-halves in the, two the two best centre-halves in the first division in England. Um, so yeah, you've got Moran, Lawrence and uh, O'Leary, McGrath, obviously, who mightn't be playing there. I'm sure we'll get to that. But yeah, serious pedigree in the in the centre half position. It, it kind of gives maybe some insight into why there was there seemed to be such interest, particularly from from Eng- English based managers uh, in the squad at the, at the time. Just looking looking through the quality of that squad, there is a, an awful lot of really top end talent there, and and you know maybe maybe for maybe for a manager like Jack Charlton, it was a was also an opportunity that he couldn't pass up absolutely and he says that in his in his press conference that he's actually had his eye on kind of the Ireland job for three or four years because he, he you know he thinks there's serious talent in the squad and it, it's not being used I think it's because we look at it from abroad from from the England English side of the border and we look at your results and we think hell flames you've got some good players over there and um, it's a it's a job with great possibilities so what will you do? What, will, what changes will you be making? I don't know what changes I'll make. I don't know what I'll do. I'm here to, to meet a few people, to talk to people, to let them see me and find out what I'm like. I mean, I can talk, you know that for a start. What can I manage? <laughs> I think the other kind of, at the time, the other uh, notable absentee was Mickey Walsh of Porto, the, the striker uh, who was left out. Paul McGrath, as we as we now know, not to, to kind of look ahead too much, but Paul McGrath would feature, particularly in the early years, mostly in midfield for Jack. And he actually says that before this game. He says something that I, I kind of had heard him say years later, which is that he thinks McGrath is too good a player to play centre half. He, he thinks he's a, you know, he's a he's a skillful holding midfielder, really. So he already has that in mind for, for McGrath. I think he had already played in that position a little bit for own hand as well, but it, it hadn't... Uh, born great results um, it mightn't have been the best form of McGrath's career something else notable was the uh, the Wales manager ahead of the game described uh, Ireland as a footballing joke because 
Uh, we were allowed to have, so it was Aldridge's first time in an Irish squad, John Aldridge. Himself and Ray Houghton were both at Oxford at the time. But uh, Mike England was making the point that us getting to get players like Aldridge with what was described as a tenuous link uh, through a great-grandmother. And of course, Cascarino's link has been well documented as, at this stage as being somewhat tenuous. So that was a little bit of spice ahead of the game, Mike England describing us as a footballing joke because of our... our players that were born in England and uh, he also had a pop at the at the uh, surface. It's funny you mention Houghton and Aldridge because when, when they were selected they were kind of recruited by um, by their Oxford United teammate Dave Langan and when they were selected for this game they didn't actually have their papers they didn't have their passports or even kind of any preliminary clearance and they were given clearance to play as guests I'm not, not sure if that could happen now. They did actually I think have everything in place by the time the the game kicked off but um they were yeah they were guests officially when they were named in the squad as you say they would both have been at oxford united doing very well alongside someone else who's been in the news in the last few days as we record the daughter of the owner who was a club employee in miss galane maxwell as i said the squad gets decimated through injuries or just incompetence in the case of the fai no Kevin O'Callaghan, yeah, it's hard to believe. Kevin O'Callaghan doesn't doesn't join the squad, and Jack calls his his club manager Alan Ball, who of course is a former teammate of Jack's in the England World Cup winning team. And Alan Ball tells him they didn't actually get the notification that he was in the squad, so that's why they didn't release him. Yeah, well, I, I think um, the the main complaint that uh, that Wales had in, in advance of the game was they were missing more or less their entire first choice defence, um, the likes of uh, Kevin Radcliffe, obviously just won the just won the first division with Everton along alongside the keeper. Neville Southall who who played in the game and then there was Pat Fanden Howe who I think at the time was at Spurs Glenn Hodges who was at Wimbledon but one interesting thing going back to Mike English's comments about Ireland being an international joke with players with absolutely no link to, to the country or a very tenuous link is the fact that he was the one who actually brought Fanden Howe into the squad the Belgian born London raised player uh, who had absolutely no link to Wales whatsoever not even a great grandparent and was brought in purely due to the fact that uh, he he had a UK passport so that, that was quite an interesting one and uh, yeah, Glenn Hodges would be a similar one I think he was born in, in London but had no no close links to to Wales so I think there was a, a little bit of mind games going on there and maybe a little bit of a, I don't know UK exceptionalism too so that's just kind of, I guess, to set up the footballing environment that Jack was coming into. But if we talk about the the wider environment, about the kind of country that Jack was, was getting himself mixed up in, here's just a little flavour of Ireland in 1986. Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to This is no time to gamble with your choice of milk replacers. AAA Golden Maverick. That's A for anti-scour, A for acidified, A for accelerated growth. Statues were reported to have moved at 27 different locations. Remember the arguments about those who dismissed the plastic images of piety and purity? The legacy of a peasant people struggling for identity in a consumer-oriented world. We start across the sea in Ireland, the country that's already provided winners in the last few years with Donna and Johnny Logan. This year, Ireland is represented by Lovebug and a catchy song entitled, You Can Count On Me. You can count on me. You can count on me. 
So uh, Ireland in March of 1986. We're not going to talk about politics or anything very much because it's as depressing then as it is now, basically. Uh, the Independent was printing loads of screeds about welfare recipients, an awful lot of stuff that would that would just uh, be too uncomfortable an echo of the of the present day. So let's I was going to say hop into the DeLorean and head back to that snowy, smoggy spring. The DeLorean is very apt because Back to the Future was still filling Irish cinemas um, in March of 1986. But we might start by tuning in some of the music of the time. So what was lighting up the charts when Jack arrived in Ireland? We we have a Herald hit list, don't we? Radio 2 hit list, rather, published in the Herald. Uh, You could call in, pick one of the letters, one of 26 hits, uh, and ask Barry Lang to play it for you and your mates. And I want to say hello now to... uh Three girls who live in, where's the address on this? In Ferndale, Bally Truckle in Waterford. Some, I had a listen to them there yesterday, actually. Uh, I had a drive back from Mayo to to Dublin, so um, got a quick playlist together. And I was, I was quite excited to see the likes of, you know, Sam Cooke. There's a, a good tune from Blue, Blues Brothers in their Art of Noise as well. Uh, Peter Gunn and then a bit of one of... Michael Jackson's brothers is there, Pet Shop Boys, Depeche Mode, Brian Adams. Um, so I was quite excited, but there was definitely a few that I skipped uh, on the way up. There's a lot of kind of very middle-of-the-road, 80s-sounding stuff. One band jumped out, Stockton's Wing. I would be a fan of, of lots of uh, Irish folk and, and generally Irish bands, obviously, but this just didn't quite work for me. It was a, kind of a blend of, of trad kind of lobbed into a kind of a bit of a power ballad and a bit of a Bruce Springsteen. for a chuckle more than anything else anything else on that list jumping out at you there's a lovely George Michael track on it as well the, the one real one that jumps out to me talking about film is a uh, Survivor Burning Heart from God was it Rocky Rocky 4 Rocky 4 exactly yeah in cinemas at, at this time uh, it had been released in 85 but I'd say it was such a big hit that it was still being milked um, by one of the cinemas that was that was the one with Apollo Creed and uh, the kind of Cold War um, metaphor going on, right? One where, um, yeah, Apollo Creed was murdered in the ring, and uh, uh, we, uh, by which I mean the entire Western world, have never forgiven Russia for it. <laughs> of course. Well, uh, I'm with Dolph Lundgren on this one. If he dies, he, he dies. He dies. <laughs> <laughs> but in a Russian accent. Yeah. Um, but- I also thought that was funny that they got a Swedish actor to play a Russian. Like, could could they just not find a Russian or what? What what's that line line from The Simpsons? Russians don't look Russian on, on, on TV. <laughs> <laughs> um, the one that leaps out at me actually, and I should say I was I was four, just going on five, when this game was played. So I don't have that many memories, but I do vividly remember this, and it's song Z, and um, possibly appropriately enough on the hit list. Yep, and it was uh, Living Doll. Cliff Richard and the Young Ones. I got myself a crying, talking, sleeping, walking, living dog. It was the Young Ones kind of comic relief cover of Cliff Richard's hit. And I absolutely loved that song when I was four. Yeah. And I thought it was the video was the funniest thing I'd ever seen, particularly when Adrian Edmondson 
hits Cliff Richard over the head with a mallet at the end of it. And I had nothing at the time against Cliff Richard, but uh, I just thought that was one of the best things I'd ever seen. Um, we were talking about what was rocking the cinemas at the time. Um, actually, the, the thing that strikes me looking at the cinema listings, just how many cinemas there were, how many were open and you know around the country, that would change kind of radically within 10, 15 years, I guess. And one of the films showing was Young Sherlock Holmes, which I think might have been the first film I ever saw at the cinema. Uh, and I watched it again the other night just for, just to see what a jog anything Proustian in me. It didn't particularly. It's, I guess, an enjoyable romp if you're 10 years old in, in, in the 80s. Yep. Your name is James Watson. You're from the north of England. Your father is a doctor. You spend a considerable amount of leisure time writing and you have a particular fondness for custard tarts. Am I correct? My name isn't James, it's John. Oh, James, John, what's the difference? The big film was Out of Africa, which I've never seen. I, 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 it won, I think, seven Oscars. It's one of those films that I don't think anyone has, has bothered watching in the past 20 years. Not at all. And do you know what? It's a strange coincidence watching um, For My Sins. Sorry, lads, don't hang up on me. The uh, stream of the United uh, game last night. And Jim Beglin, who often strives to get um, some fairly rogue uh, kind of comments into his commentary. One being, one just jumps to mind was he's starting to look like two Basakas, about one Basaka, uh, a few months back. Uh, last night, Eric Bailly was injured and he was being subbed and J- Jim very emphatically said he doesn't want to be out of Africa, um, which I thought was a strange coincidence of the African Nations Cup, obviously. But anyway, go Jim. I, I, yeah, He's, Jim is relevant, of course, as well, uh, left back in this game. He was, yeah. Um, <laughs> and he had been kind of one of the, the star performers in the previous uh, campaign on under own hand. I, I, I kind of quite like Jim Beglin when he's paired up with George Hamilton, but the cringe factor gets a bit high otherwise. But as for the smaller screen, if you were tuning in to see Ireland versus Wales um, at 4.30 all you would have got was static because RTE didn't come on air in these days until 5.55 which was probably no bad thing in terms of keeping what would now be called boomers away from daytime TV which has such a, <laughs> such an effect on them Even for an Ireland um, game though you think if they had the rights would they not just fire up the old RTE box earlier? Well I, I don't think there would have been any particular desire even to screen friendly against Wales there was no radio coverage there was like a two minute update just before the final whistle on on radio um and that was it so and there was only yeah, I think were, 18,000 at the gate the 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 crowd was only I think yeah 16,500 I think yeah it just keeps getting lower but, uh, and is yeah, that but, just because obviously Lansdowne would have had a much bigger um you know, capacity at that time. Is that just that's just a reflection of general interest and I suppose an awkward time of day? Just apathy. Um, so yeah, the stock of the national team was pretty low. Um, and what was also low was the quality of primetime viewing on RTE. Um, it was mostly like third tier comedies on this evening. Uh, so if you just got home from the match and you're looking forward to putting your feet up, getting out of the getting out of the snow and having a good evening, you were a bit out of luck because it was mostly RTE's the staple of RT at the time was like, as I said, very, very lower tier comedies that they imported from the United States. So so the, the big viewing on RT1 this evening was a, 
a sitcom called Mr. Belvedere, which I doubt anyone has thought about for about 30 years. According to our new arrival, life is more than mere survival. We just might live a good life yet. Uh, you'll like this, Dave. It was about a sports writer's butler. I don't know if you know any of them. <laughs> Got any butlers hanging around the house there, Dave? Yeah, yeah, they're all downstairs looking for my headphones. <laughs> yeah. Um, 80s really wasn't another world. In fact, and to follow that up, they had the I Dream of Genie movie. And that was your big viewing um, on the on this particular evening. Um, RTE2 had was somehow plumbing even even lower depths. They had the notorious Leave It to Mrs. O'Brien at eight o'clock, which was a, a short-lived Irish sitcom. And I often wonder, was the reason they turned down Father Ted because of this? Because this was a sitcom about two ill-matched priests and their eccentric um, housekeeper. And it was an absolute bomb, to the extent that I think Archie had to defend it from massive criticism by saying it wasn't meant to be funny. <laughs> <laughs> A hell of a claim to make about your your main sitcom. Brilliant, um, and that there are no discernible jokes in it whatsoever. It's 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 just dire. We need to think about getting the wiring done. I feel nervous plugging anything in in case I go up in a blue flashlight. <laughs> Keep wanting to put me rubber sole shoes on. We will as soon as we can afford it. Oh, this talk of luxury items like videos. <clears throat> Do you know the handy things? Yeah, you, you record programmes you missed while you were out. Watch them later. Yeah, when you're watching them, you miss something else. <laughs> uh, that was followed by This Is Your Life, Only When I Laugh, which was a decent enough kind of 70s sitcom on the BBC set in a hospital. Uh, that was that was all right. That was still being repeated well into the 90s. Um, and the other big viewing was Dynasty spin-off The Colbys, which didn't last I don't think very long and was ruinously expensive to make but that was kind of I don't know if that chimes with with your kind of memories of of RTE up until the let's say the late 90s I don't even remember watching RTE for for longer than about 20 minutes well that's pretty much all we had uh, in Mayo we had an area which you could sometimes get the English channels but uh, if it was raining I think it was if it was raining they'd be better Uh, so obviously yeah, they'd be slightly better most of the time, but still very snowy reception. Um, but we didn't didn't watch a whole lot of telly in our house. You wouldn't uh, the whole RTE not starting until five kind of um, made sense with us not getting to watch much telly. It came from a fairly old school patriarchal household. Uh, <laughs> But um, I remember maybe a little bit of Coronation Street was allowed, which I see was on at the half seven fixture even then. Um, and I do remember a bit of Cheers, which was on at twenty five past. 10. Yeah, um, I was going to say that. It does pick up a bit because you do get cheers on RG2. Um, and that there are 25 minutes of highlights of the football, which is decent enough. It, and then it's very RG1 short, though, tells, isn't it? Like, uh, I yeah. know it's only highlights, but, you know, Dunphy wouldn't even have got through his monologue four years later. <laughs> by then, so. so this is just a, this is a completely different landscape. That football, uh, as you know, what as we yeah f- football just hadn't caught on you know even in that listing there as you said Dave it's 25 minutes it's just called soccer uh, it's just the word soccer people just didn't really care and it would have been what two years before the centenary of the the GAA as well I suppose so mm-hmm. still a very um, still a very Irish society I suppose yeah but that wasn't just an Irish thing there's there's a great quote from 
some you know senior BBC executive talking about kind of the lack of football on television um because this was a time of you know a lot of hooliganism stuff like that and the game stock was pretty low and bear in mind this is like he said this maybe three or four years before Sky and the Premier League took off he, he said something like the Football Association have to understand that football is never going to be mainstream television entertainment again um which it sounds like something an RT executive would have said, but it was the BBC in, in this instance. Yeah. Actually, just rounding out RT1's coverage, The Equalizer was the last programme on that night, which unbelievably I was allowed to stay up and watch. It was a, a show about Edward Woodward, basically. It was almost like Death Wish, the TV show. <laughs> he would just go around. Well, he was kind of kindly and he was doing it for the right reasons, but he would just go around icing all these criminals extrajudicially. Cool. Uh, it was very Reagan-era stuff. <laughs> but... Yeah, you, uh, on UTV, if you did have UTV, you could at least see live coverage of the USSR versus England in Tbilisi, which England won 1-0. Elsewhere, the, the, the kind of, the again, just such a different landscape. The big movie on, on BBC Two at six o'clock was Holiday Affair, the 1949 film, which is a film I've seen, actually, and really like, but it's quite a charming film. But it's it's a Christmas film. It's it's a kind of old Hollywood black and white Christmas film with a, a young Janet Lee and... Uh, opposite Robert Mitchum. Very odd, odd kind of choice for your main film of the evening, something you might expect to see on, on Channel 4 in the afternoon. It wasn't any fun anymore. Oh, but you loved it so. It cost too much. Steve hasn't got a job. He maybe he doesn't have any money to eat anymore. Can you give him the money now, please? And um, funnily enough, because I, I looked this up when I saw it not that long ago, uh, the kid who plays her son in that film, Gordon Giebert, is still with us. Subsequently became a professor of architecture. Now, I have a track record of saying that about people who then aren't with us very quickly <laughs> afterwards. So best wishes, Gordon. We'll skip over the news, I guess, at the time, because it's pretty depressing. It's the United States kind of recklessly throwing its weight around in the Middle East and in, in Libya in this case. We'll get back to the football. So... Uh, so ominously enough for League of Ireland fans, there had been a game between Rovers and Arsenal in late February, um, which Rovers, Shamrock Rovers that is, to before any Sligo people start emailing it, uh, which Rovers won 1-0 in front of a, a crowd of 8,000 at Milltown. Um, and Jack wasn't there. Jack didn't bother attending, even though, you know, there was the Arsenal team had the likes of Lukic, Dave O'Leary, Martin Keown, David Rocastle, Charlie Nicholas, Niall Quinn, Tony Adams. Uh, quite the scalp for Rovers at the time, but it was pretty clear. It was becoming kind of ominously clear that Jack didn't see the League of Ireland having a, a huge role in his uh, in his tenure as Ireland boss. So the game itself, as I said, it kicks off in front of 16,500 um, at Lansdowne Road at 4.30 on a, on a wintry um, March evening or late afternoon and the Ireland team that starts is well I'll give it in the order it's listed or slightly different from the order it lined out I'd say it's uh, Peyton John Anderson Dave Langan David O'Leary Paul McGrath Jim Beglin Liam Brady Ray Houghton Ronnie Whelan John Aldridge and Michael Robinson so I think what's notable is that that's not kind of a million miles from the sort of teams that Jack would be lining out kind of in, in some of Ireland's biggest games of the next couple of years. Yeah, the and Anderson, he was Newcastle and just described as by Jack as not a pretty player. But I guess uh, mm. with a few centre-halves dropping out, he had to had to fill a gap. Um, 
But he started ahead of Mick McCarthy. McGrath sitting in front of them. I read in one of the reports that McGrath was offered the captaincy, but didn't take it. In fact, Liam Brady uh, took the captaincy in the end. Uh, Paul McGrath, uh, I think, uh, opted out because he was he was concentrating on maybe uh, his performance in midfield and he didn't want the extra responsibility when he was still learning a new position. Frank Stapleton was, was named captain and was meant to start this game, but he actually failed a, a fitness test. It's actually quite a not modern formation or, or a way of setting up, but he possibly due to Stapleton's omission, but um, more or less Liam Brady playing in the hole rather than... Than the traditional four four two, we'd probably get to know a bit better when when Cascarino and and, and Queen and the likes were paired up in later years. Yeah, so it would have been a, a midfield diamond basically, wouldn't it, with uh, McGrath sitting deep and Ronnie Whelan on the left and Houghton on the right. Yeah, Aldridge and Robinson. I guess Robinson was kind of coming towards the end of his. I actually didn't know Robinson played under under Charlton at all. It's one of a handful of players who played for Jack who who aren't with us anymore. But I, as I understand it, the, the plan in this game, which was something that, that own hand had, had attempted a few times as well, was to play Liam Brady a bit further forward, um, basically behind Aldridge and Robinson. And I wonder, was that kind of a recognition that his legs were, were going slightly um, and that he might kind of do a bit more damage in, in the final third uh, than mixing it in the middle of the field? He was at Inter Milan at this point. He was, yeah, yeah. So still kind of Ireland's star player in, in many ways. Yeah, hard to argue with that. I mean, um, but it was first caps for Houghton and Aldridge, which was kind of exciting, right? It was, yeah. I mean, we may as well just run through the Wales team as well, because you can kind of get a sense of the kind of relative strength of the teams, I guess, here. So Wales lined out with Neville Southall in goal. Um, Joey Jones, who was becoming Wales' most capped player in this game. Um, so he, he wore the armband. Clayton Blackmore, who I also th- always thought had the best name of any footballer ever. Not a stellar career, although I think he played into his, well into his 40s in the Welsh League. David Phillips, Steve Lowndes, Peter Nicholas, Kenny Jackett, Jeremy Charles, Gordon Davis, Ian Rush and Robbie James. Um, and we'll get to the substitutes in a moment because they're kind of relevant, I guess, to the course of the game. So yeah, uh, that, was, that was the Irish team that lined out Jack Charlton's first ever game in charge of the national team Blackmore was on uh, Paul McGrath notably I, I read in one of the reports was he was Clayton Blackmore a midfielder by trade he played yeah. midfield and he also played I think fullback at Manchester United as well that's what I thought so I did think yeah. it was uh, slightly strange he was he was marking a defensive midfielder for the game but um, um, so the game itself for most of these episodes the, the game will obviously be the main focus and we'll go into a good amount of detail this wasn't to be honest a hugely eventful game probably the the most notable thing was the state of the pitch which by all accounts was was appalling both sides said so um but the first chance of the game um fell actually to ronnie whelan uh, it was a free kick that came in from from liam brady flicked on by michael robinson um, and whelan half volleyed it not far wide of the post and then that was after just five minutes but 17 minutes in Wales struck first, um, the first goal conceded of the Jack Charlton era. Uh, corner came over from Dave Phillips, was flicked on at the near post, and Ian Rush, somehow unmarked, despite being one of the deadliest strikers in Europe, managed to kind of stoop in and head over the line from a couple of yards. A very, very scrappy goal. 22 minutes in, Jerry Payton makes a, a decent save after uh, Stephen Lowndes gets in on the edge of the Irish box um, and has an effort. Uh, Ireland's next chance is after 25 minutes when um, 
Robinson heads over after a, a, a cross by Dave Langan is turned back in by Ronnie Whelan. And then after 33 minutes, John Aldridge has the first of, of several good chances in the game. He, he chips just a little bit too low to trouble Southall. Aldridge in this game looks like someone who's going to score a riot of goals in, in short order. Uh, so we'll see how that how that pans out at international level for him. Seven minutes before half time, Jeremy Charles gets a free header in the Irish box from a free kick, but doesn't threaten the goal. And so at half time, it remains Ireland nil, Wales one. So kind of no obvious sea change from the dregs of the own hand era. It's a slightly underwhelming performance against a, a slightly underwhelming opponent, but Ireland are are behind at half time. As the second half kicks off, there's no changes on either side. Southall makes a good save early in the second half um, from an in-swinging Brady corner, which almost goes straight in. Um, and then on the hour mark, John Aldridge gets a decent chance in the box, um, but the shot just kind of glances off the upright after Southall lost a corner from from Liam Brady. So again, Aldridge coming closer and closer to a goal on his debut, um, which would not have been considered kind of out of character for for a man who was scoring freely, um, albeit for Oxford United. And then after 66 minutes, we have kind of the real talking point of the game. And an awful lot of fingers kind of get pointed. Um, This is probably the only thing people really remember this game for, other than being Jack's first game. There's a a high ball in the box. John Aldridge goes up with Neville Southall um, and Neville Southall Hits the, hits the deck like a sack of spuds, clearly is in some distress. He's, he's Turns out he's very badly injured his ankle. In fact, he's dislocated it. And after the game, Mike England and, and Neville Southall himself exonerate John Aldridge of any, any blame for this, but they do lay the, the blame squarely at the, at the state of the pitch and the state of the goal mouth. So this is pretty much the end of Neville Southall's season. He gets stretchered off, so... Uh, as they used to say in the commentary parlance of the time, guys, no one likes to see that. Yeah, Neville Southall's a legend. I was it was sad reading about it. I didn't I didn't like to read about it. No one likes to see that. And Everton were were top of the league at that point. They, they were they were Everton were actually champions at the time, and they they'd won it the previous season. Yeah, but that was the end of his season, so he wouldn't be contributing anymore to their to their campaign. I think he he'd been in Ireland a couple of years earlier. Wasn't it the, the the UCD game? The UCD when UCD yeah. were in the Cup Winners Cup. Nineteen eighty four. Yeah, scoreless. It was nil nil in Dublin, and I think it was one nil to Everton. I think UCD hit the bar late on in that game. Nearly went through in away goals. Um, so yeah, he wasn't having a, a very happy experience of Dublin, but he'd get the chance to make up for it because Ireland played a ceaseless series of friendlies in Dublin against Wales over the over the coming years. Surprised that it was um, only the fourth time that uh, Ireland had actually met Wales at that point because I was looking over at the, the other teams. It was actually the same with Scotland, four games, but with England, we'd played them nine times up until then. Yeah, this was in, obviously, there were, there were less international games back then, less countries as well, of course, but uh, I was quite surprised by the, the infrequency of the games, particularly... Uh, as we'll see, it kind of ramps up over the Charlton era. We seem to develop a bit of a, an Oman-style love affair with Wales at one point. <laughs> yeah, well, I think partly that's because obviously Wales would have Wales and Scotland would have been playing Northern Ireland every every year, um, and for for a lot of years after the split, the the, the kind of the home nations, so-called home nations, didn't didn't play against the Republic unless they they really kind of had to. So 
there wasn't that many games played between Ireland and, and British nations, let's say, uh, for a good few years. So Southall goes off to, to I'm sure, a sympathetic round of applause. That's a bit of editorialising. They could have been spitting at him for all I know. Uh, actually, um, it was reported that there was, in one of the reports, there was booing, uh, which I was very booing. surprised to hear. Um, perhaps maybe before it was clear that he was in, in a lot of pain and, and maybe he was just making the most of Aldridge maybe bumping into him in the air. But yeah, there was one of the reports. Either that or they were booing the groundsman. <laughs> well, that, that would too. be very far-sighted. Uh, yeah, one of the no, reports actually, even I... went so far as to say that uh, his wife was also in hospital at the time with appendicitis, which uh, seemed yeah. like a bit of a stretch for a match report. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's it's good to have all the facts. I, I don't know if they were expecting the crowd to know that. <laughs> that was the, the inference. <laughs> it, it's just it's it's one of the golden rules of football. You don't you don't boo a footballer whose spouse is suffering appendicitis. It's uh, everyone knows that. Not these, at all. These it's Bill Shankly quote, these, isn't it? <laughs> soccer barbarians um, but anyway he's replaced by by Tony Norman substitute goalkeeper who was a Hull, Hull City player very well regarded but obviously with, with Southall in the team didn't get too many chances at international level and he proves really to be the difference um, he makes some outstanding saves most notably from Ray Houghton when he's you know barely had barely had a chance to, to get warmed up if, if, if you can speak about goalkeepers getting warmed up Um he saves a, a, a decent shot from Houghton from the edge of the area with about 20 minutes to go. Um, and then by this stage, Ireland have made their two substitutions. Mick McCarthy, who, as we noted, his absence was was remarked upon. Uh, he comes on for John Anderson after 50 minutes. And Pat Byrne of Shamrock Rovers comes on for Michael Robinson. So presumably a slight tactical shift there in that that. Pat Byrne was really a, a midfield player. Um, Jack Charlton always said that Pat Byrne was the best League of Ireland player he ever saw, and he particularly <laughs> admired his like his kind of medium range passing ability. So you know his his ability to hit a hit a ball over the top, I guess, from from the halfway line. So, but Pat Byrne gets his um, who's already an international by this point. He gets a run out. He very nearly scores. Um, he he kind of darts through the middle, gets a shot off, and Tony Norman makes what was described later as a world-class save. And yet again, Norman pulls a save, as they used to say, out of the top drawer. Aldridge again, was um, it? Well, the next one's actually McGrath. There's a, a free kick comes in from Brady. Paul McGrath gets up, connects with a very powerful header, which he was very capable of. Norman makes a brilliant reaction save to keep him out. And then Aldridge does have a chance with five minutes to go. Long ball upfield from Dave Langan, his, his Oxford United teammate. Aldridge turns it down. And this time he does beat... Norman, but the ball comes curling back uh, off the post, and that pretty much is the last chance of the game. It's it's an inauspicious start to the Jack Charlton era, and um, and Wales run out one nil winners. I think the general reaction was that um, it can't get any worse. So uh, <laughs> there's an odd tone of a, a a mixture of sort of despair and and, and hopefulness in the in the post match reaction. Um, uh, the, I think the tone is sort of different across the different newspapers. The Irish press were quite, quite, quite scathing in their response. Um, Peter Byrne in the Irish Times, he, he, a legend of Irish journalism, he was a lot more, uh, I don't know, I suppose upbeat and positive. Yeah, the um, the Indo didn't go too hard. Well, actually, the headline is, it's not all right, Jack. Um, 
but they didn't go too hard on, on him and, and there was some good sounds about the, the debuts of John Aldridge and, and um, Ray Houghton the, the one thing that really popped out for me from um, from Charlie Stewart in the uh, in the Irish press was a, a scathing indictment of, of English football or English league mm-hmm. football it was more or less an assertion that we shouldn't be playing these uh, these Neanderthals from across the sea because they, they don't really play much ball One thing that leaps out at me is that a lot of people seem to identify the experiment of, of McGrath playing in midfield as a, a, a huge failure and that it shouldn't be repeated so as we as we know, with if we allow ourselves a little bit of foresight, it, it would indeed be repeated, and I think it kind of speaks to it speaks to Jack Charlton's, um, I think, slightly underrated tactical nous that he saw that Paul McGrath would would actually blossom into, into that role um, and put him put him there from the very outset. I think this was also the game at which Liam Brady complained about Jack calling him Ian. Um, <laughs> wow. Yeah, there's a scoop. Which Jack, well, funnily enough, talking about scoops, he did used to call Cascarino the ice cream man at this time as well. Um, but Jack's explanation was that he'd grown up with like Ian's, and he was now being expected to familiarise himself with Liam's, which would work if Liam Brady wasn't one of the most prominent players in world football at this time. Um, so yeah, Jack's notorious scatterbrains got an early outing there. Perhaps that was the origin of the the Liam Tui dispute. Maybe he went into the dressing room. And <laughs> just looking, just kind of looking at all this in the round, it does really smack of Jack just just laying down a marker and just saying, you know, it's it's my way or the highway, and I want my my people and my tactics, and I want total obedience and loyalty. Um, and we'll see if that works out for him in the in the the weeks ahead. The manager's post match remarks. Jack says, sure, I'm not satisfied with the pitch. <laughs> this is really cheeky. In this condition, it makes one-touch football inadvisable, as you only get yourself in trouble. I thought that was um, a gas yeah. way to start off <laughs> his, uh, yeah, yeah, his career as Ireland manager. He must have played on some terrible pitches with Sheffield Wednesday. And <laughs> uh, he says, but I can't do anything about it. Actually, that was one other thing I noticed. that We now remember the kind of contentious thing being his style of football and the way he played the game and being so direct. But there's very little reference in, in the papers to, you know, his style of play being radically different from hands or, or being being um, primitive or crude or anything like that, which I think is, given how the tenor of conversation will change, I think is notable. Like, Jack, Jack isn't kind of effusive in his praise of Ray Houghton, who's making a, a big step up, I guess, here. Um, he says after the game that, that he did okay, he showed some nice control. Jack wasn't really one for for over praising players, um, and but he makes clear to Paul McGrath that he's not he's not dropping back into the fence. He says, "I'm not going to change him from playing in that position. I haven't got anyone else to play it," which again isn't isn't a great vote of confidence for a few people. And the more Paul operates there, the more he will get used to it. And he makes a very kind of damning with faint praise remark about Liam Brady. He says, "I thought he poked the ball around very well." <laughs> yeah, poked. <laughs> But you don't hear the, uh, the the verb poke too too often in, in um, football parlance these days. There, there generally seem to be from from all the reporting a lot of pressure on McGrath. I would say because there's so much chat about him being in that position. He has to be in that position. You know him, him not taking the captaincy because of it. He must have been feeling pressure. Like yeah, I guess there was there was probably a lot of a lot of hope on his shoulders, particularly with um, Ian Brady, uh, Liam Brady uh, coming towards the end, and we were kind of maybe on the lookout for. I don't know the the next big Irish player, and he was 
the most obviously talented player that we had in the squad at the time. And we should say though, when we talk about kind of Liam Brady coming to the the fag end of his career, he was only thirty at this point, and he was still playing for one of the biggest clubs in the world. And um, but all the chatter in the in the papers the following day is about kind of Liam Brady being sidelined and whether his his time as a playmaker is over in the Irish team because he did play that bit further forward and he was bypassed quite a bit. So yeah, the kind of the writing on the was on the wall for for Brady, um, really from day one with with Jack Sharpton. For someone who should have been just kind of you know if not in the prime, past his prime, as a as a central midfielder, like absolutely. In the papers afterwards, there's also a a, a nice picture of Neville Southall um, in St Vincent's, propped up on his pillows, um, <laughs> in kind of very very eighties slumberwear. And I must say with not to body shame, but with with more chins than I can count in, in, in this picture. He was always an extraordinary shape for a footballer, even in the 80s, Neville South. He certainly was, yeah, yeah. Uh, but a fantastic goalkeeper, and an incredibly agile goalkeeper as well. There was also an interesting little comment by Con Houlihan, one of the, the great Irish sports writers of, of that time or, or any time. And he, he says, I think self-deprecatingly, I didn't manage to get an exclusive interview with Jack Charlton yesterday evening. I couldn't find an interpreter. <laughs> I think the inference is that Jack would have needed the interpreter. Yeah. <laughs> uh, because Con, he had marvellous clarity in his writing. His, was he from Castle Island? Castle Island. His okay, accent yeah. was, even for someone of that vintage, was mm. almost unintelligible, I would say, to anyone who grew up like a five mile radius beyond Castle Island. But as as we know, Con will report very, very capably and colourfully on the Jack Charlton era as it progresses. That's assuming he doesn't get the sack after this terrible defeat at home to, to Wales in his opening game. But uh, people seem reasonably level headed. So, fellas, what do we think about this team going forward into a Euro, Euro 88 qualification campaign up against Belgium, up against Scotland, Bulgaria, Luxembourg, with one team going going through? What, what Would you be confident at this point? I suppose a 1-0 friendly defeat at home to Wales isn't quite on the scale of a, a 1-0 qualifying defeat at home to Luxembourg. So um, maybe maybe there, there are grounds for optimism in general. With that wealth of, uh, wealth of talent, um, you know, Predominantly around the around the defensive positions, a little bit of a little bit of hope there. And I think there there is a danger, obviously, of reading all this with a certain amount of hindsight. But I, it does strike me that Jack knows what he wants pretty much from from day one, and is kind of confident about the sort of shape he wants to put on the team. So I think that bodes well. Anyway, um, the next game will be against Uruguay in a, in a month's time. Uh, on the 23rd of April at Lansdowne Road. And after that, Ireland will be heading to Iceland for a, a triangular tournament against Czechoslovakia and Iceland after pretty much every other team in Europe pulled out. Other than that, chaps, are, are you tempted to, to stay in 1986 or will, will we jet back to, to the, the welcoming environment of, of 2022? Yeah, I, don't, I don't know about you, but I'm heading off to the Adelphi to watch uh, Back to Back, Back to the Future and Rocky Four. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm I'm very much in '86 now, Turlick, reliving my toddler youth. So, <laughs> okay, all right. Well, we will be back as soon as possible. We're not doing this in real time. We could have started in March and just done it that way, but that's uh, that would take us nine years, which I think is optimistic <laughs> given the state of the world <laughs> at the moment. So we'll try and get an episode out every every couple of weeks. Um, we the the lineup may fluctuate as people are available or, or whatever, but we'll try and be as we'll try and do this as, as consistently as we can. And we'll be back very soon for the next 
episode of Back to Jack. And we'll see you then. Take care. And up yours as well.